Hello there, this is the uh, Psychology Report with Dr. Alan Hedberg. Uh, today, I'd like to address one of the major problems facing America. You know, both political candidates, Trump and, Trump and uh, Clinton, have made statements acknowledging that drug addiction is at an all-time high. Heroin addiction, particularly, is at an all-time high. The use of drugs uh, right across the nation are here and unfortunately here to stay. There is no answer to the drug addiction problem in America. Trump says the wall that he will build will stop drugs coming across from Mexico. Well, it won't stop it, but it may slow it down, make it harder to come across. Many of the drugs that are coming across from Mexico are underground. Tunnels are built and they transport them underground and they'll continue to do that. When you try to set up a barrier about something that makes somebody money, they will find a way around that barrier or find a way under that barrier. So all good news to Trump. It would be wonderful if his wall would stop the flow of drugs into America. Not just marijuana and heroin, but a wide variety of drugs. I wish it were that simple, and um, but at least it's an attempt. At least he acknowledges it. On the other hand, Hillary Clinton says she's going to put $50 billion into the drug rehabilitation world. And she will try to set up a program across the country for drug addicts to be treated. Well, her $50 billion isn't very much. America already spends $40 billion a year on drug prevention and drug treatment. And that's at the federal level, let alone at the state level. It's much more than that. We already do what she's saying. And the drug usage and drug addiction is at all-time high. So that's not the answer. Wonderful to have drug treatment. But the federal government cannot be in a drug treatment program. That's for individual uh, clinics and therapists and organizations to develop programs for drug addiction. When President Nixon was president, he had a bill that allowed people to apply for federal monies to set up drug treatment programs. I did. I got a sum of money from the Nixon uh, government to teach alcoholics how to drink in moderation and in control and not overdrink. We had a large number of alcoholics in a program. That research has been published. And we were relatively successful in teaching a large number of them, not all of them, but a large number of them to control the drinking and make it moderate. So there are a variety of ways in which treatment programs can be developed, but just throwing money at it is not going to be the case. We have to have committed professionals develop a clinic designed to treat and designed to help prevent drug addiction. Treatment is one thing. Prevention is another. We'll treat drug addicts until the world come to its end, but can we do something about preventing drug addiction? Can we do something with a three-year-old, the six-year-old, the eight-year-old, the 12-year-old, the 14-year-old, where drug addiction starts, 14 years of age? It's in those years that we must do something very, very drastic and teach young children how to deal with problems in life and not escape. Drug addiction is a problem of escapism. You have problems and you escape. You have pain and you take a pill to escape it. You don't like something and you try to smoke something or drink something to change your mood so that you don't have to deal 
with the pain of that particular event or that situation or that mood. Drugs are used to change mood and to change the way we feel about things and then, of course, what we do about things. But it's largely an escapism industry. Let's take a look at what drug addiction is uh, these days in America. We don't realize the number of people who are drug addicted. Just do the math. There are 40 million people addicted to cigarettes. 40 million. And they will smoke until the world comes to an end. Very few of them will terminate their smoking addiction. But 40 million are addicted to cigarettes. Then you go to alcohol. 17 million. Almost 20 million. Almost half. Almost 20 million are addicted to alcohol. And some of those people are addicted to alcohol and cigarettes. Impossible almost to come out of and to terminate those kind of addictions. So we have 40 million on cigarettes. We have 17 million on alcohol. And then on other kinds of drugs, the marijuana, the heroines, and that kind of thing, 7 million. Now that's a population in itself. 7 million people who are addicted to a variety of other drugs that include Oxycontin, includes painkillers of a variety of kinds. Then you go down the list even further. What about video games? Those that not just play video games, but are addicted to video games. Six million. That's six million people. Many of these are young people who will not only perpetuate that particular addiction over time, but will often go on to another addiction and include other addictions. And it becomes a life of addiction. It isn't just playing video games. It becomes a whole lifestyle. And video games, the addiction to video games, is an act of escapism. You don't have to deal with reality when you're playing games. You don't have to deal with mother. You don't have to deal with father. You don't have to deal with homework. You don't have to deal with a teacher. You can put that off and escape the reality of that. What about gambling? What about gambling? We are seeing an enormous number of Casino is being started up across the country, always on Indian land, because that's what the contract requires. We have 6 million people who are addicted to gambling, and that will likely grow. As more casinos are developed, of course that grows. It has grown over the years. But that's 6 million just in gambling addiction, 6 million in video game addiction, and many of these are the same people. And then what about pornography? 4 million people were addicted to uh, pornography in its various forms on internet and magazines and videos and various kind of movies, you know, etc. What about just painkillers? What about just people who just get onto a medication and get addicted to it because they have a backache or they have headaches or they have some kind of muscular pain? The doctor gives them a painkiller, gives them the same painkiller that he would give a patient with cancer who agonizes over extreme pain. Two million people today are addicted to painkillers. Where do they get them? Well, 70% of painkillers are obtained from the bathrooms and the medicine chests of family members. Mother's on a painkiller, dad's on a painkiller, kid sneaks in there, takes the painkillers, starts using them, finds out that it gives them a good feeling, and then begins to use them more and more and more. And before you know it, we have a painkiller addiction. Painkillers are obtained from the prescribing doctor only about 18%. And from drug dealers on the street, about 5%. And there are drug dealers on the street that sell painkillers. 
five, ten bucks, fifteen bucks. Pill, a pill. So that it's painkillers are available. They're readily available. And until we have some kind of a control over the uh, distribution of painkillers, and we have a control over where they are maintained and kept, and so on, we're going to have increasing degrees of addiction to painkillers. The addiction is a growing process. It isn't something that you just do and then all of a sudden stop. No. It's something that's growing. Here's how it works. You take some kind of a pill and it creates a sense of happiness, a sense of pleasure. In other words, it releases dopamine in the brain. And dopamine in the brain creates that sense of pleasure and enjoyment and joy. And before you know it, if you want to have that same kind of feeling, you take another pill another time. And then you take another one another time. And then you take another one. And before you know it, you're taking these daily. To create that sense of well-being or that sense of joy or a sense of happiness. Or just that kind of good feeling that you get. Well, after a period of time, it now requires more of that pill to produce that same amount of dopamine that otherwise was taken to stimulate the brain and give a good feeling. In other words, you don't get a good feeling anymore unless you take additional amounts of that kind of painkiller or the marijuana or the alcohol or whatever it might be. In other words, we're now into a phase here of what we call overstimulation. It requires more now to produce the same effect. and That's when addiction really takes root. And that's when a person is totally into the addiction phase and will remain there, perhaps for the rest of his life. Well, then, it goes into kind of a third phase, where it requires now even additional amounts of dopamine. So you got to take even higher levels of the drug, not just more often, but higher levels of that drug, to produce a feeling of pleasure. And that's when that brain is now overstimulated. And now the dopamine is irregular. It produces sometimes and it doesn't produce sometimes. It releases sometimes and it doesn't release sometimes. And you're left with kind of a decreased inability to predict the dopamine effect in your brain. In other words, sometimes when you think you're going to have a pleasurable experience, you don't. So you take another pill. You take a more of it. And then the fourth stage, of course, is you don't get any response whatsoever. You take pills and you take any of the uh, drugs that we're talking about here, you take any of them, and it produces no effect. In other words, the brain is dead. The brain is dull. The brain is just uh, there in body only and is not responding, does not respond to the drug that it did at one time. And it just, the, you have a craving for it, you have a need for it, you have a desire for it, but it produces no effect whatsoever. So the drug essentially becomes an abusive drug on your brain because it just dies and kills your brain that much further and faster. So you become kind of brain dead, we might call it, or you became dull and no longer can you think and no longer can you produce ideas and no longer can you be creative and no longer can you interact with people and engage in conversation. Your thoughts cannot come together. There's kind of a deadness of, within the brain. Well, that's a period of time. You know, it starts with just that one little pill, that one little dose that creates a little bit of pleasure. And then that dies off, so you've got to take more. And then you take more, and then you take more, and then that dies off. 
the point that you have to really take any huge amounts of it. And now you become so addicted to it that it captivates the entire day of your life. And then eventually the brain just kind of goes dull, goes numb. And you can't use it for any good whatsoever. And all you can do is just take another bit of drug just to kind of knock you out. And before you know it, we have a suicide or a death, which today is at the all-time level. All-time level. About 125 people, drug-addicted, die every single day in America because of their overstimulation by drugs. And their brain has just died out and is no longer functional, no, no longer usable. About 125 people a day die from drug usage. And we're worried about other kinds of issues. This is a major, major, major problem in America today. So what do we do? It's kind of feeling somewhat hopeless. Uh, certainly there's a helplessness. Maybe not a hopelessness, but there's certainly a helplessness. We don't have an answer. Hillary, $50 billion won't even touch it. She can just keep it. She put it in her foundation and use it for her own personal use. It's not going to do any good. Trump can build the wall. That'll help a little bit. More power to him. And anything we can do to stave off the supply, at least that helps. But what it does, it drives up the price. Because if you can't get it, what you can get will cost more. So just drive the price up. And then, of course, that will increase the crime because then people have to engage in more crime behavior to get more dollars to buy the drugs at a higher price. So you see how much of a vicious cycle this really is? You know, we've got to stop the flow. That's true. We've got to get our treatment programs in order. That's true. And many of them are not very effective whatsoever anyway. You know, the average treatment program uh, using AA ideas, Alcoholics Anonymous, is about 15% successful. So, you know, we don't really have an answer to this. Uh, but there are some drug programs, live-in programs, residential programs, where if you're serious... You can get some help, but you got to be serious. We have to change our insurance policy so that insurance will help cover, you know, treatment. We got to have a government that will help supply some dollars to support drug treatment programs so they can be provided at the community level, and they have to be brought in through the business so that people can go to work and then get their treatment program in the evening. So drug treatment programs have to start around four o'clock in the afternoon and go to eight at night every single day. For 100 days. I mean, there are answers. There's ways of doing it. But we have, we got to, first of all, become serious. But to recognize that this is a problem. Drug addiction is a problem in America. And we got to deal with it. We, gotta, we really have to address it. Our churches have to address it among its youth. It's not being done currently. Our schools have to address it. Not being done currently. Our jails have to address it. Not being done currently. Our prisons have to address it. Not being done currently. Emergency rooms, clinics in our communities need to address it. Not being done currently. We really are not dealing with this issue in any meaningful or effective way. So we're open to ideas. The jury's still out. Uh, I think that the career of the future, if you have a young kid in your home looking for a career, the career of the future is drug alcohol counselors or law enforcement officers, or correctional officers in jails that will deal with the drug addiction population when they show up in the jail and the prison and emergency rooms 
and when they're in school and have to be referred for clinic and have to be referred for treatment. High schools are going to have to adjust their program for these drug-addicted kids. Go to school a half a day and go to a drug treatment program the other half of the day in the school, at the school, on the school property. We're going to have to address it. We have to get serious about this. And we're not at the present time. If you have an answer, get going on it. Talk about it. Communicate it. Try to do something to help start a program that might be effective. Well, this has been the Psychology Report. And I'm Dr. Alan Hedberg. And I refer you to my website, booksbyhedberg.com. And in there, I have a book, Doctor, Teach Me to Parent. And I talk to parents about ways in which they can prevent drug addiction in the part of their own children in their home. The chapter, Drugs Are Not Allowed in Our Home. Drugs Shall Not Cross Our Doorstep. You have a home, never should a drug enter into that home. Homes should be drug-free places, drug-free communities. That's alcohol, cigarettes, painkillers, marijuana, other forms of drugs. Homes should be free of drugs, drug-free. And if they're not, you're contributing to the problem and you're putting your kids at risk. Because if whatever you do, the kid will do. Research has shown this over and over again. If dad smokes cigarettes, there's an 80% chance that the kids will. And if dad and mother smoke cigarettes, there's almost a 90% chance that the kids will. I mean, kids do what the parents do. And parents can't stop them. Same with marijuana. Same with other forms of drugs. The parents are using, the kids will be using. So doesn't that tell you where the answer is? This has been the Psychology Report, and I'm Dr. Alan Hedberg.